There was a little girl who got home from Sunday school one day, and her parents asked the normal question, what did you talk about in your class? And the little girl said, well, we talked about the story where Jesus changes water into wine. And they said, oh, that's a great story, isn't it? She said, yeah, it was really neat. And they said, well, what, what did you learn from that? What, what did you get out of it? And she thought for a minute, and she said, well, it's always a good idea to have Jesus around. That's, that's adorable, but also, I think, the more you think about it, it's pretty fitting. A little girl, childlike faith, missing the point of a biblical story in such a way as to almost rediscover it again. She's rediscovering what the disciples discovered here, that it is an always a good idea to have Jesus around. Now, here we are in John chapter 2. Now, during Advent, we looked at most of the first half of John 1. And then a couple weeks ago, we were in the second half of John 1. So we've covered almost that whole chapter. And yet, we are not going to be going through the entire Gospel of John. We're actually only going to take from this time up through Easter to look at some stories, some episodes in the life and ministry of Jesus that are unique to John himself. See, we, design, we divide the, the Gospels up into two groups. There's the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which have almost completely shared content. And then there's John, who's off on his own. And there are an awful lot of things that are unique to John, but we're going to look at just a few leading up to Resurrection Sunday. What we saw last time was Jesus calling his disciples. This is something that all of the Gospels have. John, however, zooms in on some unique stories. Five individuals, actually. John, Peter, Andrew, Philip, and Nathaniel. And for that reason, many assume that in this story of the wedding in Cana, just Jesus and five disciples are there. But we know from the rest of the Gospel of John and from the synoptics that he actually called 12 disciples. And this is their first outing together. You ever been part of a group, especially a group that's traveling together? That first day, that first outing, it's a little weird, it's a little uncomfortable. Everyone's feeling out, everybody else trying to figure out what the, the vibe is of the group. Who's the one to sit by? Who's the one to avoid? What's it going to be like as we travel together? Well, this is what the disciples are learning. And wow, do they learn this lesson well at the wedding here in Cana. Now, Jesus kicks off his ministry with a very ordinary event, a wedding. These things happen all the time. In fact, later in the scriptures, when, when the emphasis by the apostles is that things will continue normally until the end when Jesus comes back, this is one of the things listed. People will marry and be given in marriage. Just regular stuff. I don't know about you, but when I was in my uh, mid-twenties, there was a season there where I was going to weddings all the time. It wasn't just ordinary, it was tedious. All your friends are getting married. If you have 16,000 first cousins like I do, they're all getting married. You're getting one of these RSVP cards in the mail every 25 minutes. And, you know, imagine Jesus in this context. This is a community where almost everyone's invited to almost every wedding. This is an ordinary thing. He'd get out the card, he'd be like, I'll be having the lamb. I get a plus 12, right? I'm bringing my plus 12. Actually, Jesus and his disciples are invited, so they're all, they're all expected there. And as they gather together, we see this great miracle, and it's the first of seven sign miracles that John actually kind of takes the whole gospel and organizes it around these seven. 
There aren't as many miracles, public miracles, in the Gospel of John as there are in the synoptics. He is very, very picking and choosy about what he wants to emphasize. In fact, it's John who at the end of his Gospel, he says, if I were to write down everything Jesus said and did, the world wouldn't be able to hold all the books. No, I chose these things that you might believe and in believing have eternal life. He's got an agenda in his writing, and it's not hidden. It's out in the open. And then we see here in verse 11 that Jesus has the same agenda in doing these miracles. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. He starts with his disciples. There's more of an emphasis in John uh, on Jesus' one-on-one ministry and less on his big public ministry. Both were important aspects, and we get different kind of emphases depending on which gospel we are in. So he's at this ordinary event, and you got to remember that Jewish weddings would be very different from what we're thinking about as a wedding. The, the feast might go on for days, actually. It was a very big thing. People would come and go. It was the height of celebration and joy and happiness uh, and interwoven throughout the social and cultural aspects were religious aspects. It was all woven together. You couldn't separate it out. Here's the church thing. Then we're going over here to have the reception. No, it's all, it's all together. When I was in Israel uh, last year, I saw three weddings in the course of being there for nine or ten nights. Uh, the first night, we were in Tel Aviv in a kibbutz up on uh, a very pretty view of the Mediterranean Sea, and there was a, a balcony, and there was a wedding, and it was raucous. And it started about 7 p.m., and even though I had a horrible jet lag, into the night they were so loud it was hard to sleep. And, and there was just this, this cultural emphasis on when we're having a joyous occasion, we're doing it together. And we're not doing it halfway. We're doing it all the way. And Jesus shows up for just that. Nothing can make this great occasion not great, not happy, except if you run out of wine. That is bad stuff. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around just how bad I mean, if Aaron and I were having a dinner party and she said, oh, it's embarrassing, I ran out of wine, I'd say, hey, big deal. 60 seconds away is a world market. You write down what to buy because I don't know, I don't have a clue. But then, you know, I can go get it. I'll be back in five minutes. Not the case in the world in which Jesus lived. You, you see, they would be preparing for the feast logistical aspect well in advance. They didn't have the luxury of dreaming about the dress. No, you had to get the wine and the food, the bread and the meat all together so that you would be prepared. This was a matter of, of honor and a, a matter of, of not embarrassing yourself. In fact, it goes well beyond embarrassment. In this very communal culture, the family was obligated to meet a certain social standard of hospitality, especially in this feast, the wedding feast. To drop the ball there was to bring shame upon yourself and your family. It wasn't exactly a crime, but it was a crime if you ran out of wine. You know what I mean? This was, this was a huge deal, and we don't want to miss that. And, it's, and it would have been bad if they ran out of bread. It would have been bad if they ran out of hors d'oeuvres or whatever. But it's far worse to run out of wine in their culture. Because wine was symbolic, a symbol of joy. 
in Second Temple Judaism. In fact, there's a rabbinical saying, without wine, there is no joy. That particular rabbi may want to rethink some things, but it does fit the cultural emphasis. And the idea, the, the, the notion remains that this should be a time of laughter and happiness and above all joy, and it's about to fall flat on its face. And very few people know, and one of those people is Jesus. This is not a critique of this particular party. In fact, this is in keeping with what the scriptures say about wine. Yes, drunkenness is all the way around condemned, and let me say that a couple times. If you like your wine and you drink it until you have lost control of your faculties, you have sinned. Drunkenness is condemned in the scriptures. But wine is significantly and consistently and always a symbol of joy and of God's blessing. The passage that uh, Jonathan read for us earlier, Psalm 104, 14 to 15. There's the description of God blessing. And what does it look like? It looks like those who are reaping being overtaken by those who are picking the grapes. Those who are bundling the crops together being overtaken by those who are treading the grapes and making wine. So there will be uh, wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. What are the three things that they're expecting that God will provide to make them happy and healthy? Oil, wine, and bread. And it's always abundant wine when there's a picture of God's great blessing. It's abundant. Proverbs 3, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. When there's a picture of what the Messiah will do when he arrives. Way back in Genesis 49, there's this picture as, as all of the sons, the, the patriarchs, are being blessed. Judah is blessed in this way. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choicest vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes." This guy's going to be so blessed, he can do his laundry in wine. When we look at the, the day of the Lord, that, that great and terrible day for those who are opposed to God and who are enemies of God, it's a blessed and wonderful day for those who are his people. How is it described? Well, Joel describes it, and in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine. Amos 9, we see the same thing. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader grapes, uh, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. So if the abundance of wine, properly used, is a picture of God's blessing and of joy and gladness, the dearth of wine, running out of wine, is the opposite. It is a picture of blessing is done. Ichabod, the glory has departed from this party. It's dead here. Let's get out of here. This is not what you want happening at your wedding feast. And so Jesus' mother seems to be tight with whoever is in charge here. She knows the problem, quietly goes to her son and says, Jesus, they've run out of wine. Jesus says, woman, what hath that to do with me? My time has not yet come. Now, I was thinking maybe I would find a teenager in the congregation and make a joke about, hey, 
don't be tempted to talk like that to your mother, but there are literally no teenagers here. There's nobody here under the age of 21. Where are they? Find them, encourage them. Ask them, can I bring you to church? We miss you at church. This is a problem. That would have been, that would have been a, a happy little moment, but instead it was awkward. But it sounds disrespectful, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound, woman, what, have, what does that have to do with me? It, very slavely translating, woodly translating, it says, what has this to do with me and with you? Like, what do, we, what do we have to do with it? My hour has not yet come. This is something Jesus will say continually throughout the gospel. He's continually concerned with people missing the point of his messianic ministry. What has this to do with me? Now, this word woman here is not the kind of disrespectful flip address that we would see it in our language. In fact, in the NIV, it's translated dear woman, and that's probably more along the lines. This is a, a sign of respect. This is, this is what you say to a woman who you hold up in great esteem, but not your own mother. It would be like calling my mother Mrs. Bartles. That's a sign of respect, but she'd be like, what's wrong with you? You see, Jesus is redefining the relationship with his mother. Recognize that in the Gospel of John, there are only two little scenes that have Jesus' mother at all. And they're both very carefully chosen, as is everything in the Gospel of John. So in this moment, Jesus is saying, look, there's a distance now. We continue to have a relationship, but it's not the mother-son thing that we had. Now, this is a relationship of Messiah, Teacher, Savior, Lord, and Disciple. You will have to follow me and submit to my will and my lordship. And of course, that is exactly what the Virgin Mary does here in this passage. By the way, the only other time we see Mary in the Gospel of John is way at the end, chapter 19, when she's at the foot of the cross while Jesus is dying, and he looks down at John and Mary and says to John, Behold your mother, and then to Mary says, Woman, same word, dear woman, behold your son. I, I gave up that role of the son who could care for her in her old age by going down this path, so you will care for her instead. And we see in both of these incredible uh, faithfulness on the part of the mother of Jesus. In, in fact, I would say that, I, I put this on Facebook last night to see if I get a rise out of some people, and I did. If, if we cannot see in Mary a model of discipleship, we're too Protestant, or rather, we're Protestant in the wrong way. This is, this is the young girl who said to the angel Gabriel, when he said, I'm just going to wreck your life because God's plan requires it, she said, may it be done to me as you have said. Submission to God's will. She's, she is willing to be part of God's plan, even when instead of glory for her, it means a sword is going to pierce your heart and your people are going to point at you and whisper when you walk by. And here, in the same way, she looks to everybody and just says, hey, hey, servants, do whatever he says. That's a short sermon, one that we all probably need to hear, right? You, do whatever Jesus says. She submits herself to his plan, to his judgment, to his will. And so he says to them, see these, these stone jars, these big stone jars for purification? I want you to fill them up with water. Now, these would have been there as part of kind of the entryway. In this case, on the way in, they wouldn't take your coat, 
there'd be someone to wash your feet, and then you would go to the ceremonial stone jars. You'd wash your hands with this water that had been purified in this particular way. It wasn't merely a hygienic practice. It was part of the law of Moses. These are big, big jars. There's a number of them there because this is a big, big gathering. These jars hold between 20 and 30 gallons of water each. Now, everyone's worried about being unclean in this area, even more so than in the rest of Israel because Cana's not far from Nazareth. And like Nazareth, it's a crossroads of people from Samaria Roman soldiers, merchants from up in Tyre and Sidon, Gentiles. The air is unclean around here, all right? We, we need to continually cleanse ourselves and make sure that we are not becoming unclean and, and we're not somehow uh, subjecting ourselves to an a accidental violation of the law of Moses. They fill them all up. So if, by my math, this is between 120 and 180 gallons of water, and he says, now draw some out, bring it to the master of ceremonies, and present it to him. Master of ceremonies may be a little bit of a stretch, translation-wise. I hear that, and I think, well, growing up when I did, I think like an early 90s rapper. But then after that, you think of like the cheesy guy who says, you know, for the first time ever, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. This guy is much more important than that. Actually, when you look at the original Greek word, it's, it's a very interesting word. It's a three-part word. Archetriklinos. Arche meaning ruler. Tri, right? That's three. Klinos. This is the ruler of the three couches, you guys. Which sounds like a title that a seven-year-old would claim for himself, but it's actually a great honor. He is, as the King James says, the governor of the feast. Meaning he is in charge of blessing the couple blessing their marriage, blessing the, the goings-on, blessing the food, and yes, blessing the wine. And that's why they bring this to him, so it can be blessed and presented. You know, they bring a little to him, and he tries it. It's like, that's the most awkward thing for me. If there's wine involved at a meal, and they bring me some, and they're like, and I'm like, mm, yeah, tastes like medicine, like all wine, great. Uh, but, but he knows his wine. This guy knows what's going on. He knows good wine. He knows bad wine. He tries this, and he cannot believe what he's tasting. It's not bad wine. It's not cheap wine, like a lot of people associate with the church. It's not good wine. It's the best wine. And he, he comments on it. This is not the normal practice. Usually people start with the really good stuff while everyone is thinking super clearly, and then as their palate gets a little dulled, they've drank a lot, they're, they're eating, they're drinking, and then you bring out the, the bad stuff and no one really notices that you've done it. But you, you saved this, the best for last. Let's pause a moment and recognize that when Jesus made wine, he made the best wine. Now, when we follow Jesus, what we make ought to be as close to the best as it can be. That when there is Christian music, it ought to be the best music. We ought to have the best humor. We ought to write the best computer code. We ought to do the best manual labor because what we're doing, according to St. Paul in the Scriptures, is not to our own glory and not just for a paycheck or just for a recognition, but rather is for the glory of God. This is a very important application, I believe, of this passage. Easy to skim right over. 
Jesus made wine and they said, this is the best. In fact, one of the few things we know from tradition, going back to Nazareth where Jesus was raised, where he worked with his father and worked with his hands, is that we have this tradition that Jesus and his father Joseph made the best ox yokes, which is very fitting when later on he will teach that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. When he was working in his shop, he wasn't doing it halfway. He wasn't that good enough. No, he was the best because he was working to the glory of God. It's a story about a beloved old physician who was retiring in a little French village some centuries ago. And it was a poor little village, and he had devoted his life to serving the people there. He'd given birth to all the babies, and he'd, uh, well, no, he hadn't given birth to all the babies. He'd delivered all the babies. He'd he'd helped everyone in their suffering and their illness and their old age, and, and they loved him, but they couldn't afford to do much for him. And so the mayor of the village proposed that they set up like a cask in the middle of town, and everyone, because it was France, they all had a wine cellar. Everyone goes and gets some of their best wine, their finest wine, and they come and they pour in a pitcher of wine or a goblet of wine and it would all mix together everyone's best wine and make this wonderful wine and he'd be able to take it home and every night as he sat there all European and everything and sipped his wine he would be able to remember and and even taste how much they loved him so the first day after this big party, after he'd watched this line stretch way across the entire village and all these people pouring in wine, he said, I'm going to have my first glass. And he, he poured some out and he tasted it and he couldn't believe his lips, I guess, because it was not fine wine. It was barely wine. It was so watered down. It was practically wine flavored water because so many people when they lined up said, well, everyone else is bringing wine. No one will notice if I bring water. It'll water down the wine just this much. No big deal. But so many people did that that it became water rather than wine. Almost like Jesus' miracle in reverse. We don't want to, as the church, as the light shining in the darkness, take these shortcuts so that the way we love, the way we live, the way we serve, the way we work is halfway. Like Jesus, we should make the best. And Jesus doesn't just make the best, but he makes a lot of it. By any account, more than a hundred gallons. This isn't just enough for the rest of the party. Jesus wants the celebrating to go on, the joy to continue, and remember what is a picture of God's blessing and gladness, but an abundance of wine. Now Jesus is saying, I'm the guy who is going to usher in this kingdom you have been waiting for. This is how he works. When he feeds the 5,000. Is there just enough bread and fish to feed everyone? They all get just enough so that their stomach stops grumbling? No, no, no. Everyone eats their fill, and the disciples go out, and each of them gets a whole basket full of leftovers. There is something to be said here about Jesus providing life abundant. He is providing great joy for these people here, rather than great embarrassment and shame. Now, many Christians, as we look at this story, have to look in the mirror and say, I'm probably not as joyful as Jesus is here. The fact that he shows up at this wedding at all and doesn't say, sorry, can't attend, sending my regrets, you know, in the little lines there where you say why, he's like, well, I'm starting my ministry to save the world. I don't have time. He doesn't. He, he takes time immediately. 
He's literally been publicly the Messiah for three days. And he's at a wedding. A wedding that takes a day to get to from where he's leaving with his disciples. There is joy there. And Jesus will be part of the joy. Remember the fruit of the Spirit? We think about those. And we think about someone who just personifies the fruit of the Spirit. They'd better be joyful. Because one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. To be someone filled with the Holy Spirit and following Jesus means to be joyful. The stereotype today may be the opposite. Christians are grumpy. They're all from that tiny town in Footloose, right? They're just, I hate everything and I'm mad. And I'm going to post about how mad I am all day long online. And, and this is my whole life wrapped up in one big scowl. The stereotype today is don't invite that guy. He's super religious and one of those uber born-again guys. And everyone will feel weird if they're having fun. Because he's around. Right? No one will want to order wine. No one will want to, you know, if it's Christmas time, don't even invite him to Jesus' birthday party because he'll make it weird. If you mention Santa, he'll get mad. If someone says happy holidays, he'll read him the riot act. And yet, when we read the Gospels, especially John's Gospel, whenever people were having a good time, Jesus was welcome. Jesus was invited. Jesus was often the source of the good time to the point where his enemies said that he was a drunkard and a glutton. Now, he wasn't, but that was an easy place for them to go because everyone knew that Jesus was full of joy and enjoyed gathering together to celebrate. Today, however, we often think in terms of Puritanism. And I don't, and I don't mean real Puritanism. I mean the semi-clever definition someone came up with whenever, that says Puritanism is that abiding, deep fear that someone somewhere is having fun. That's not fair to the Puritans. If you read them and know anything about them, they enjoyed life. They loved life. They even loved a good glass of wine. But we have this picture of anger, grumpiness, sorrow, and all of those things baptized into the most spiritual emotions. That's not Jesus! My friends, Jesus shows up at the party. Jesus is the one who, who says, take some of that to the master of ceremony. Bring that over the three couches and let's, let's sit back and see what he says. And I can't imagine this guy doing it without a bit of a smile on his face. Like the Puritans in real life, Jesus knew what his brother James would later write. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. Whether it's a good glass of wine, a beautiful sunset, a football game that goes into triple overtime, a perfectly ripe avocado. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Now, all of the, the good gifts of God can be abused all of the good gifts of God can, can be corrupted by sin. That's what sin is. Whether it's by drunkenness or anger or those little brown spots that appear in your avocado if you don't eat them soon enough. But as Christians, we ought to be freer than anyone else alive to truly and fully enjoy those good gifts to the glory of God. Because we don't understand that this is part of God's plan for our lives, I think that may be part of the reason why teenagers are not just here, but in general, absent from the church now. There are many different reasons, but this goes back, at least to my generation, X, which is two ago. Right? We, I remember this kind of understanding we all had, that we had to have our fun now, 
Because later, we'd have to go to church and bring our kids and be grumpy and not smile and whisper, and, and, and nobody would, would enjoy life anymore. I remember one time, my Sunday school teacher, there was this, this uh, woman when I was about 13, 14, this young lady named, uh, we'll call her Danelle, because that was indeed her name, and she was wild, and everyone knew it. She had kind of a reputation, and the teacher said, Danelle, are you ever planning to serve God? And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, when I grow up, definitely. Just like my parents, you know, later on, I'll, I'll essentially, not these words, but, you know, I'll... I'll trade in my enjoyment of life and celebrating and smiling and joy and put a permanent scowl on my face because that's what God wants. It's not what God wants. It's not what God wants for you. And when we accidentally teach our children this, we are going to push them away from the one, the one path that truly does lead to life and joy everlasting. And of course, the question would come up for Danelle and others who are, who are planning this kind of a sudden change of direction. Why would someone who doesn't, for years, doesn't long for the presence of Christ in his word, in prayer, in the gathering of the saints, in the bread and the cup, suddenly begin? Unless, unless they're, they're converted at a later date, suddenly want all those things. And those people who call themselves Christians, but never read the word, never come and gather with the saints, never take part in the sacraments, never pray, they, they imagine that when they die, suddenly they're going to want to be in the presence of Christ. They're going to want to spend eternity with this guy they've spent their whole lives avoiding. No, we are called to find our joy in him. Spurgeon has a wonderful quote on this, not surprisingly. And it starts with the word sepulchral. You know that one? Sepulchral. I'm teaching you a new word today, then. It's a word you can only use if you're Charles Spurgeon. It comes from sepulcher, which means tomb, a tomb. So this is like tombish, tomb-oriented. Sepulchral tones may fit a man to be an undertaker. But Lazarus is not called out of his grave by hollow moans. I commend cheerfulness to all who would win souls. You want to lead people to Jesus, you're probably not going to do it with a frown on your face. Now, the happy, clappy, everything is good. God just wants us to be healthy and good-looking and rich. That doesn't work either because it's not what Jesus taught. But finding joy in him is one of the most effective tools of evangelism. Jesus does not compare his ministry to one long, never-ending board meeting or to a funeral dirge played in slow motion. Rather, he compares his ministry, his kingdom, to wine. New wine in new wineskins. Might be asked, with all this wine stuff, why do we use grape juice? It gets so quiet. A, because wine tastes like medicine. I'm kidding, that's not why. No, no, and actually, if you were in my uh, Sunday school class on tradition, we spent a whole week talking about this. There's a number of reasons why I think churches do it today, but it's a practice that's only 150 years old because non-alcoholic wine or grape juice is only 150 years old or a little less, and it comes from an internal Methodist dispute. And from there, it kind of spread and spread and spread. Now, would it be more biblical if we used wine? little, I guess, but not in a way that's really all that meaningful. This is something that's happening in the heart. All the same, it might be a bit of a metaphor for what we see in the church today. 
Where we're not making the best. We're not serving and following as faithfully as possible. And we trade in that wine, which the rabbi said, without it, you can't have happiness for a tiny little plastic, non-biodegradable, one-time-use cup of purple sugar water. Or maybe a better metaphor would be the one that John himself seems to imply here. That, that the running out of wine in the midst of the celebration was symbolic of the spiritual dryness of Jesus' day. See, they had six, all they needed of all the right vessels for all the right purification rituals. In Jerusalem, they had a beautiful temple that blew your mind, covered in gold, and in it, they had all the right rites and ceremonies and sacrifices, and yet, God had long since left the building. The water of purification was being used, but it was of no use without the joy of the Lord. And without the joy of the Lord, even drinking all this wine was just, it was just numbing them to what they were missing. And Jesus came to bring what they were missing. A true, abiding, deep relationship with God. Not a relationship of the judge and the condemned, but the relationship of Savior, Redeemer, and the one who is Saved, And the same thing can be said today. The waters of purification here, we go into baptism, it is a beautiful sign. And it is tied closely to what it signifies, the washing away of dirt and filth. But it does no good if there is not internally some repentance, true newness of life. And that is part of the lesson here as well. Empty human religion cannot save. Jesus came because apart from that new wine, in that new wineskin, there is nothing to satisfy our souls. Not more than a little bit at a time. We won't be satisfied by human religion. We won't be satisfied by human pleasures and the gratification of the flesh. Not for long before we're seeking after that next thing. Jesus came and he says, listen, You've been drinking that water, and you're thirsty again just a short time later. I bring living water. You drink this, and you will never thirst again. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But the world at large doesn't look to him. You can watch as our culture scampers from one thing to satisfy for a moment to another, to another, to another. Like when you're really thirsty and you're like, sure, I'll have some Mountain Dew. And even as it crosses your lips, you're like, this was dumb. Oh, I'm even thirstier. This is what we're seeing. And we need to be people, joyful people, who present a true satisfaction in a true Savior. A reminder that you will not find, you will not find ultimate meaning and purpose and satisfaction in that next job promotion, in the bottom of that wine bottle. You won't find it at the end of uh, whatever line you're waiting in. You will only find it in Jesus Christ. As they walked in, they all had walked past six of these stone jars. I can't not talk about the six. I'm sorry. What's the number six in Scripture? What's the significance? It's often said that it's the number of man. There's a number of reasons. One being that man was created on the sixth day in the creation narrative. And it's sort of accurate, but perhaps it's more accurate to say that seven is the number of completion and perfection, and six is the number of falling short. 
So it's kind of the number of men in that all mankind have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In the book of Revelation, 666 is the ultimate falling short, the number of man and the number of the beast. And so we see these six stone containers. These are reminders of falling short, having the outward trappings without having the inward life having the happiness which is rooted in happenings, but not having the abiding joy that remains with us forever. These human pleasures, good as they may be, gathering together with friends, celebrating, enjoying a feast together, they will run out. Christ offers something better. We're going to look at the woman in the well narrative in a few weeks, and we see that he offers her something better. The world's water, it's very temporary in its quenching. And even when we look at, at people who have dedicated their lives to saying there's no supernatural, there's nothing after this life, just get what you can from this life. Jean-Paul Sartre, philosopher, a French philosopher, who that was his whole message. Wow, everything's meaningless, and I'm going to tell everybody. Even he, near the end of his life, is recorded as having said, sometimes, at some point, we must ask, even of Mozart, even of Shakespeare, is this all there is? We can joyfully answer that question. No, this is not all there is. We see here also a little uh, hint of Jesus' second coming. He's at, a, he's at a wedding. He's a guest. Next time we see Jesus at a wedding, he will be the bridegroom. And we will be the bride. And when he comes back, he will again drink of the fruit of the vine with us. That's what he told us on the night that he was betrayed. And, and his first miracle at the very beginning of his ministry, foreshadowing his second coming at the very end of all things, reminds us that there is more to come. There is more than this. Enjoy this, but don't find your satisfaction. Don't find your meaning in all of what's around us. And you know, it's easy for us to kind of get wrapped up in our work, wrapped up in our lives, wrapped up in our routines, and say, I don't really have time for all this other stuff. I don't have time to, to gather together with people. I don't have time for celebrating with them or weeping with them or sharing life together. I got too much going on. This is even a problem for ministers whose job is to minister to people and spend life together with them to go, oh, I got this checklist of other things I need to do that keeps me away from the people. You've got so much important stuff to accomplish to take time for rest and prayer and meditation and socializing and celebrating is not possible. Really? Because Jesus was on a pretty important mission. You may recall it was to save the world. And he, at every turn, stopped and took time to spend life together with people. To trade in chunks of time, finite time and energy and pour of himself into others. Jesus said, we are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. That means that we provide the flavor. Christians ought to provide the best flavor. We probably could do better. As we walk out these doors today, I don't want you to say to yourself, oh man, that, that passage makes me think I'm not doing enough. I want you to walk out the doors and say, how can I, like Jesus, enjoy this life in a way where I find my ultimate joy not in circumstance, not in happenstance, but in the God who loves me, who came in the person of Christ to save me. Let's go to him now in prayer.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for these stories that sometimes we don't quite know what to do with, that seem to offer a lesson here and a lesson there. And Lord, we thank you that when we open them up and begin to unfold them, we find ourselves reminded of simple truths, little truths. We find ourselves challenged to appreciate the life you have given us and not to wish it away or to nickel and dime it away with little things that don't matter, but rather to recognize that you've given us families. You've given us a church family. You've given us every good gift that we can appreciate, good food, good drink, good friends. Lord, may we remember that they all come from you. May we appreciate them and enjoy them. And Lord, in that, may we be a witness. May we be salt. May we be light. May we, like Jesus in that moment, inspire others to look at our lives, to see that we are followers of Jesus, and to believe. In your holy name we pray. Amen.